This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In Japan, Shinzo Abe is stepping aside, citing ill health. The big question for Japan is, who's going to replace him and will they continue on the same economic agenda he started to try and tackle the country's struggling economic growth and deflation? Many argue his policies haven't worked, but the question is, would the alternative have been even worse for the country? It's surely not a time for more fiscal control and, dare I say it, austerity. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve. Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So, Steve, we've all got uh, a guest to, to get used to the idea that we've we've had this massive drop in GDP from the coronavirus. And the big question we've all got now is, is what's going to happen next? Do we all become like Japan, where, of course, you know, they used to low GDP. GDP growth has been trickling around 1% or less for the last decade. And in fact, the decade before that, they're, they're calling it the lost decades for Japan. But if you take those two decades and then go back more, go back to the 1980s, uh, you've got this long period of, of virtually zero inflation. In fact, period, periods of uh, deflation. And the answer to that from Shinzo Abe, of course, to ta- particularly to tackle that deflation, was a three-pronged approach, monetary easing, in other words, very low interest rates from the Bank of Japan, along with uh, introducing quantitative easing before it became fashionable, fiscal stimulus from the government and structural reforms. Those three prongs are what became known as Arbonomics. Now that pretty much sounds like what every country is uh, now doing, isn't it? Because uh, with, you know the similar three pronged approach, which is interesting, because it hasn't really worked for Japan, has it? So what makes people think it's going to work now? Well, it's it's worked for Japan in the sense that what they um, what what they had beforehand was uh, immense level of stagnation, and after. Uh, a period of about 20, it's not actually a lost decade, it's almost, almost like it's a lost quarter century. But in the final period of that lost quarter century, it has started to get some growth. Um, but it's, nonetheless, it, the economy hasn't died. And um, the, mm. the, if, you, if you look at what's going on, um, it's been non-stop, uh, non-stop deficit spending. And one, one thing, I saw a lovely little meme on the um, on internet a couple of days ago of a, a, a son talking to his dad, the, the son wearing a, a cowboy outfit. It's obviously, he's been done something playing cowboy in the backyard. And the dad is saying, that's mad, and that's mad, and that's mad. You know? and, and they said, and he said, what the kid's doing is talking about, uh, well, if you have runaway government spending, you're going to have runaway inflation. And the dad says, Japan. I said, but if you do it for that long, uh, you're going to lose control of your currency. Japan. And I think that mm. Japan confounds everything about the mainstream expectations. So, so, is, it, it, so yeah. is it a good argument in favour of non-monetary theory then? If we, I mean, apart from the it fact, is. obviously, they haven't, 
they haven't totally yeah. embraced it though have they because they've still got this expectation uh that they're paying it back in fact 22 percent of, of the government spending goes back on paying interest payments if they just that, didn't that, do that, that that's inevitable and and this mm. is the funny thing because i mean we talked a bit about the mechanics of this and we'll do, we'll do more obviously as and as, as the coming months on the mechanics of how the government actually finances itself but if you think about uh, like I'll, I'll go back and give you the data here, and this is the quite fascinating thing. Of course, this data ignores the data that I focus upon, which is absolutely critical, but I'll ignore it for the meantime. And if you go back to 1980, let me try to check out the data here, 87, mm-hmm. the Japanese government debt peaked at 64% of GDP. Absolutely terrifying. And then yeah. they had this wonderful period of about a decade. Uh, so going from 80, so 80, no, no, not quite a decade, pardon me, about five years, 87 to 91. So halfway through 87 to ha- ha- halfway through 87 to halfway through 91. So four years, but they managed to reduce government debt. Fantastic. Great, great performance, guys, from 64% of GDP to 54%. So a 10% fall. Since then, it has gone from 54% yeah. of GDP to its current level of 218% of GDP. Mm. Now, if, you, if you're a mainstream thinker, you're going to say, oh, runaway inflation, Japan, because yeah. you take a look at the numbers and the CPI, just look at the inflation rate over that period. Um, we're going back to the highest rate of inflation Japan has had in the last 40 years. And trust my program to decide not to work on me all of a sudden. Hang on a second. Well, oh, while you, while, while yeah. it's coming back, while you're yeah. while you're yelling obscenities at your machine, I mean the other way of looking at it as well is you look at uh, what the Bank of Japan is holding in assets, and that's gone from 2010 120 uh, trillion yen in assets. Uh, up to now 578 just before the coronavirus mm. so it's, it'll be worse now yeah. 578 trillion uh, so I mean that's that's and the vast majority of that is government bonds in fact increasingly the proportion of it is, is, is government bonds so that's just buying up that that debt so uh, and that's where that those interest payments having to pay those interest payments are coming from but the mechanics yeah. of it if, if there was another way they wouldn't have to do that well, the, 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 the point we made a couple of days ago, I was actually finishing the inflation point because I wanted to, to get that in there. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. 1980, which was the beginning of 1980, so before this period, so this is going back 40 years, the inflation rate was 8.7%. Uh, by 1990, when its crisis began, it was down to 39 uh, Since 2000, it has normally been hovering around zero. Uh, there have yeah. been periods like uh, 2002, and it's been minus 1.5%. It's been as deep as minus two and a half percent in two th- during the financial crisis in two thousand and nine, and it's currently running at 0.3 percent per annum. So, but that's a problem, yeah. isn't it? I mean, not having inflation, having deflation, which, by mm. the way, is what we're now seeing in Europe. The question is: is that temporary because yeah. of the coronavirus, or is it the start of <laughs> start of having deflation here? That's, I mean, you know, for reasons we've spoken about in the past, deflation is is not good. I mean, first of all, who's going to buy stuff if you think it's going to be cheaper in the future? Yeah, and this is the danger. They've fallen into a classic debt deflationary trap, but they've managed mm. to prevent how deeply they've gone into that trap by massive levels of government spending. And so that's the the thing which is which is different about economics compared to what the mainstream politicians and economists are doing elsewhere in the world is they haven't felt restrained by running a government deficit. They've kept on doing it. And because yeah. they run a government deficit, their debt levels have gone um, in terms of government debt from 
uh, as I said, a bottom 55% to 220%. So basically a fourfold increase in the level of private debt to GDP. And just recently, I had a bit of an exchange with someone over the, uh, the infamous uh, Rogon and Rogoff paper, a Reinhardt and Rogoff paper about how once you get mm. past 90% of GDP, oh, it's all disaster. Well, this is three, almost three times that. And uh, yep. Japan, whatever else it is, it isn't a disaster compared to the uh, macroeconomic performance of the rest so of the world. So what did they say? That, how did they say that disaster would play out? Did they say, yes, that oh, would the, create runaway inflation? They said inflation. the disaster was- played out by, first of all, just producing a spreadsheet with straight out spreadsheet errors, then by <laughs> aggregating things. So one year in New Zealand was equivalent to 40 years of data in the UK and a whole range of it was, just, it was It was almost as good. Almost mm. as good as William right. Lord House, but what did, but what did they say? Lower would, than that. But what was their conclusion, though? That if you had, uh, if, well, if debt got over false. N- <laughs> right, okay. But their false conclusion. Let me get to this. So they were saying if you got over ninety, was, yeah. over ninety percent, your economy will slow down. Right. Okay. okay. Rate of economic growth, um, and. It, but it, it was, well, it, I mean, it's not speed, it's not speeded up though, has it? I mean, that's for for, for all of it. And I guess that's the other question. I mean, that yeah. they're not seeing growth, uh, that they haven't seen inflation go any lower. I guess is your point. It, it would have been much worse if they hadn't. But they're, but they're also not seeing the the economy pick up. Um, and then there might be other reasons for that. I mean, so, so demographics we know is is part of it. They're not exporting anymore. Uh, they've, they've been through a period of growth, and that's all flattened. So they're still selling cars. It's just they're not selling more of them. So is that so? So an economy without growth is that a, is that a problem, or is that something that we're going to have to accept as being the new normal? Because things can't grow forever, can they? Well, the thing about um, Japan is that it's actually had a with a different again different thing about Japan. Its demographics are opposite the opposite of the rest of the world. Its population is falling. So mm. when you look at Japan, you look at American growth. You've got to factor in that there's a rate of population growth of about one percent. You look at Australia, it's about two percent. Look at Japan, it's zero to minus five percent population growth. So consequently, yeah. when you look at the per capita figures, Japan has actually been doing quite nicely on per capita growth for about the last fifteen years. It did very badly between nine ninety and, and two thousand two thousand and five, but for the last fifteen years, it's been doing about a, a well or better than the rest of the rest the rest of the OECD. So it's it's not a salutary. Uh, you've got you've got to be cherry picking the data to describe Japan as 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 a salutary tale, and equally cherry picking it to say it's a um, it's a, it's a lesson for the rest of the world what the rest of us should do. But certainly, yeah. it's achieved yeah. positive per capita economic growth. Uh, of the level of or better than the rest of OECD for most of the last one and a half decades. Yeah, during which time, you know, many countries were running the opposite of abonomics, which is austerity, and that hasn't worked mm. too well either, has it? Yeah, well, and this is the thing. Because they've been, um, they haven't panicked about the level of government debt and haven't mm. gone into the austerity stuff, they haven't taken demand out of the economy. And this is the point that I think I'm glad to see countries saying, oh, they're going to follow abonomics. At least it's an improvement over neoclassical economics uh, because the obsession about paying down government debt which you can already see happening in the discourse in the UK and Europe and America is pointless. And the Japanese fundamentally um, empirically show that because they've had this dramatic increase in government debt and the economy has sailed on successfully, relatively, mm. through it. Uh, what they have had, of course, is a trade surplus. And that, in my opinion, I mean, contra DMMT, yeah. that insulates them from the impact of 
the, the government deficit doesn't leak out into a demand for imports in the rest of the world and undermine the money creation of the government. But getting back to the fact that the Bank of Japan is holding all these bonds now, all these uh, government bonds mm. as, as assets sitting mm. on their, their balance sheet, I mean, that is QE, isn't it? I mean, the government is, uh, you know, we're getting back to the mechanics of how modern monetary theory might be applied. But I know you're not a big fan of QE because mm. basically all this money is going through the finance sector. So you've got the Bank of Japan, as I said, going from 120 trillion yen in assets in 2010 up to 578 trillion. And, uh, and uh, the vast majority of that now in, in government bonds. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it government bonds or on, on shares? I know they've got a fairly heavy... No, invest, a lot of it is in, is, is in, is in government bonds. I mean, yeah, it, it okay. had been about 50-50, but now I think it's... I might have got this wrong, but sort of, you know, order of magnitude, like 80-20. So they've been buying up big in uh, in, in government bonds. But that's how yeah. they've been buying the government debt, basically. Yeah, that, that as it happens, is irrelevant. Right. And this this is one of the, again this is one of the things where again I've I've learned a lot by putting together those Minsky models recently because if you look at um, uh, the uh, and we talked about this in a previous podcast uh, when the government spends more than it takes back in taxation it's adding money into the, the deposit accounts of private individuals at private banks and that is recorded as well as an increase in the reserves of those private banks. So the individuals you and I get money to spend, but what the, what the banks get is an increase in their reserve accounts at the central bank. And those reserve accounts, uh, they can't go, they can't spend those because they're assets. They're not on the li- liability and equity side. You spend money, money is what's on the liability and equity side of the banking sector. So they can't do anything with it. Then you come along and say, we're going to sell your treasury bonds. Uh, to the private banks. When you make that sale, uh, the, 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 you, you issue tre- tre- treasury bonds equivalent to the deficit that you've run. Mm. Okay. The private sector looks and says, well, we've got these reserves which have been created by the deficit that are earning us no interest, and we've got this offer of buying treasury bonds that will pay us interest. Now, you've got to yeah. be pretty stupid. Be nuts not to. Yeah, you take exactly. It. Okay. So, yeah. What, so yeah. in that sense, the, the, the reserves that are needed to buy the assets of treasury bonds are created by the deficit. Now, once you've done that, you then have to pay interest on those bonds. How do you pay the interest? Well, the treasury, since it issued the bonds, is paying the interest. That means that it pays money into the equity accounts of private banks, which means their reserves rise as well. Okay. Right. You know, but that is the guy. figure that's always used, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. in uh, in mainstream media, yeah. and I gave that percentage, 20, 22% of what the government is spending is is money that's being used to pay for the debt it's racked And where up. do that's they get the, the money it's... from? They borrow it from the central bank. So it doesn't matter whether it's 50, 80, Yeah, and what, what interest do the does Treasury pay when they borrow from the central bank? Zero. Yeah. So when you look at it again, yeah. look, this is why the, the double entry bookkeeping is so important. When you and look this is at why the, there's a need for a new terminology, isn't it, really? For all, yeah, for all it, it, calling it debt, I mean, it, it, we, you know, I'd, I'd like to use a form for it or it, maybe surety or something of that nature, a, a term mm. which implies that it's some sort of necessary backing, but it isn't an obligation to repay, which is what debt, the word debt always means to us. But see, if you look at, if you look at the mechanics of the government running a deficit, it simply spends more than it gets back in taxation. Now, uh, to do that, it's got an account at the central bank putting the treasury, effectively a treasury deposit account at the central bank. So that could go below zero. Now, if you have a rule, and that's okay, there are some central banks which allow that. So the treasury can have a negative balance at the central bank, just like you and I can have a negative balance in our private accounts if we were to negotiate an overdraft with the bank. Of course, we pay mm. penalty interest rates on that. 
Yeah. The Treasury pays no interest on those. So if you if you require the balance has to be zero, which is most countries do that, you have must have a non-negative balance in the Treasury account at the central bank, then the Treasury is obliged to issue bonds. When it issues those bonds, because the reserves have already created the money, um, the, the, the deficits created the reserves for the banking sector, the banking sector snaps them up. The money is transferred from the reserve accounts of the private banks to the treasury deposit account, keeping it at or above zero. Mm. So that's that's the function there. Now, once you've done it, you've got the debt, you've got to pay the interest. And that's where, looking again at the double entry bookkeeping, the interest is an income of the banking sector. So that goes on the banking sector's equity, the finance sector's equity. That also increases their reserves. Right. And then when, when the banks themselves spend in the broader economy, that money then transfers out of the bank's accounts into our private accounts. So the interest that government is paying is part of the money creation process. Right. So, now, so you're doing two things. By borrowing from the central bank on which it pays zero interest. Right. So what you're saying is you're doing two things at the same time then. In, in a way, the government is able to spend because it's, uh, uh, because it's got a bigger budget. Uh, and on the other side, because you've got more reserves sitting in banks, banks can, can lend out more as well. Yeah, well, that, that's right. The banks themselves, well, the bank got to lend out the reserves. Oh, hang on, mate. <laughs> Quick slip there. Uh, you were caught live on TV, sorry. Uh, uh, but, but, but what happens is the banks have more reserves that they want to employ in yeah. other fashions. So those reserves themselves are part of what the banks are then using when they buy you know, their own you know, buy assets, buy whatever else they can do, whatever else they're allowed to buy with those reserves. I think they're fairly open right. slather these days. There used to be rules on what they could buy them with. Uh, but so the, it's part of the money creation process. Paying interest on government debt is part of the money creation process of the right. government sector. Now, you, you were, you're talking about the central bank buying those bonds. What that does is, again, how does the central bank buy the bonds that the bank, the, the treasury sold bonds to the finance sector? Yeah. Okay. The first stage. The central bank is then buying those bonds off the finance sector. What happens when they do it? The amount of bonds in the in the asset side of the banking sector goes down. The reserves go back up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you got stuck with more reserves than you want again. So then you need to right. go do some more gambling with the with the reserves. But equally, the amount of interest you pay to the banks, the finance sector goes down. So money creation goes down. So okay. So it's better always better if 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 the banks themselves are buying these bonds. So why? To some extent, to some extent. So yeah, why I mean, go down yeah. the road of QE then? Just because they thought, well, there's so much being issued, the banks are just not going to absorb all of that? Or well, a, lot of, but, a lot of the QE, I mean, Richard Verner's version of QE is, is different and I haven't read Richard's stuff recently enough to, to cover what he describes as QE. So my apologies, Richard, if, I, if you're listening and I stuff up on this one. But QE's practiced in America was buying bonds off the private banks and not just treasury bonds in this case, but also you know, corporate bonds as well, uh, which would then mean that they have the, their income earning stuff has gone down, their non-income earning reserves have gone up. That then encourages the banks to use that money to buy income earning assets. When they do that, the reserves don't change because the people they buy those assets off bank at the banks and it comes back in through the deposit door, but they buy right. shares and drive up share prices. So the whole yeah. effect of QE yeah. is to make shares more expensive. Well, that makes yeah. wealthy people who own shares really even wealthier. And that was the, the idea behind that was to encourage um, the private, the wealthy people to spend. 
That was Ben yeah. Bernanke's recovery. So QE, right. what, what, what's And then the, we get trickled down doing? and the world will be glorious. Yeah. But I mean, that's, yeah. but that, that, that isn't happening, is it? And, uh, and that's because the, the, the other part of our economics, obviously, was to try and push consumption. And that's where it all seems to have, uh, have failed. They're, they're not consuming uh, more. And in fact, it's, it's, it's been a bit bizarre lately because they've done the exact opposite of what you would do to try and increase consumption. And this is why I wonder whether uh, Arbonomics is going to derail a bit, because even with Shinzo Abe as prime minister, they were doing things like pushing up the sales tax to try mm. and, uh, you know, and they said this is to try and recover some of that government debt. I mean, they did it, you know, from last year's sales tax went from 8% to 10%. Curious time because even before the coronavirus, the the, uh, the economy was contracting. We had uh, negative GDP for one quarter, and you know it was likely it was going to happen again, mm. and obviously it certainly has now. Uh, so, so here you've got an economy in decline, uh, and your answer is, well, we're going to we're going to pull Take money even out more of the money economy. out. Yeah, from I mean, the economy. This, is, this again shows that they don't. You call when you call it economics, you're saying it's the politicians doing it. The politician is doing something slightly different to what the textbook tells him, but he still doesn't understand the system. So, the, 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 <laughs> even the, though the it's ma- named after him, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Reaganomics, remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Reagan was to mm. the comics. That was about it. Um, um, even that might be a question. Um, so there's. There's, there's many of these policies which are going to be a mishmash of things that are sensible and things that aren't. And the reason I'm going to go back to my, my favourite topic now as to why this stuff had some degree of success, and that is that while focusing upon the level of government debt, the mainstream and the Japanese completely ignored the level of private debt. And what did that do? Um, if you go back to uh, the, the early 1960s, private debt in Japan was 120% of GDP. And that's much higher than it was in America. But this partly mm. reflects the history of Japan, that Japan, uh, American corporations and American banks tend to be independent groups and, you know, robber barons and all sorts of wonderful personalities like that. The Japanese are organized into what they call Kiretsu. So there's a Mitsubishi Kiretsu and the I think there's a Toyota Koretsu. They're industrial financial agglomerates. Will it be a bank which is part of that, which by, by, by custom lends to the industrial side? So rather than needing equity finance, a lot of investment in Japan is debt financed, but it's debt financed by a bank, which is part of the overall group. So right. it's not debt finance, the usual way we think about it. But that, that reached 120% of GDP and flatlined. It rose from 120 to 140% in the mid-70s and then flatlined there until 1980. And that is, have you ever heard of, you know what the, Ameri- what the Japanese call the 1980s? No. The bubble economy. Right, okay. Quite literally. What you then had so- was this huge stock market bubble and real yeah. estate bubble, and the level right. of private debt went from 140% of GDP to 220%. So, that, so they were like a for, the forewarning that we all Absolutely ignored Absolutely a forewarning. Again, Japan, yeah. because the data screams actually that this is what's You're causing right. the trouble. And so the, private debt in the 80s, and they're still paying for it now. A high level of private debt in the 80s, they're still paying for it now. They've tried to correct it by uh, upping government debt, but, it, but it's not been enough to correct the problems that they had. Exactly. So if you look at the level of private debt, again, that so said it went from, you know, it rose from uh, 140% of GDP in 1980 to 
1990 when their crisis began. Its rate of mm. growth slowed down at that point. It finally peaked at 220%, and that's in 1995. And from 1995 to 2005, remember that 15-year period I gave you a short while ago? For that yeah. period, um, debt fell from 220% to 160% of GDP, so 60% of GDP right. fall on the level of debt. That was a major source of the stagnation across that period. Yeah. And, then and, that, from- and, that would, and that would explain why we're seeing things like, for example, the fact that exports, since the, since the global financial crisis, I mean, mm. the Japan's exports haven't really picked up. Uh, you know, they were, they were rising up to that point. They pretty much have plateaued. It's almost as though they've lost that innovative edge which has carried the country forward. And that will be because of this fear of, of investing too much because well, of what I, went before. Yeah, I mean, in fact, if you, you may ever see the old movie The Rising Sun, yeah. Okay. Um, Long time ago, but okay, yes. Okay, we played, maybe played the theme. Is that part of this part of the podcast when we broadcast this thing? Mm, no. But at that stage in 1990, everybody thought Japan was going to take over everything. Okay. Mm. You had, what, what was the main form of That we do music? with China now. Pardon? Now we're doing, like we right. do with China. That's yeah. right. But the, the main, if you had a musical machine, what was it? Let's see how old they're testing how old you are here. Well, a jukebox or no, a... No, uh, portable, portable music machine. Oh, well, like a boombox or a, uh, oh an iPad. Oh, my God, you are young, aren't you? A no, no, no. Sony Walkman. Oh, a Walkman. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, do you know, you had them for two weeks and then they broke. That was my Doesn't experience. Doesn't matter. That's the Japanese store of... money, money selling them to you. But, like, because uh, <laughs> they, they kept what, them what, what was the leading company, car company at the time? It was Toyota or a Honda? Okay. Uh, or the innovation uh, was Honda. Honda, yeah. Honda was the leading innovator. Yeah. Um, yeah. So right to 1990, it was the dominant economy and people thought it was going to take over the whole planet and that was the theme of, of the rising sun. All came mm. to a cropper in 1990. One of the amusing things about Japan, one reason I love it as a case study, is that the, the stock market bubble that, that went along with the housing bubble, the stock market bubble actually burst on the 31st of December 1989. Well, it's a yeah, nice symmetry. Very last day it? of the decade. At something like <laughs> 39,994 points, almost 40,000. And it then fell to as low as 7,000. I think the Nikkei is somewhere around 17, 20,000, 25. I don't follow it anymore. But that sort of level now. So they've never recovered mm. the level of stock market prices. It was all driven by insider trading and made yeah. massive amounts of credit and so on. So, and, and when you look at my, my argument of the relationship between change in private debt, which is credit, and, and unemployment. Um, my favorite example is usually America on that. But if you look at the data for Japan and say, what is the relationship between a change in private debt and unemployment um, for the length, the duration of the data, the data starts in 1966 on the correlation of change in private debt with the level of unemployment is minus 0.9. Mm. Okay. And what is the neoclassical assumption says? Assumes it's zero. Yeah. So they're completely wrong. And Japan is a classic case for my approach to credit and for modern monetary theory's approach to, um, uh, to government funny creation. So the, the hope is, of course, isn't it? But it's been shown that it doesn't make a, a jot of difference, it seems. If you keep interest rates low for, for a long period of time, um, then that is going to encourage people to borrow and they're, they're going to borrow and they're going to invest and that's going to see the economy grow again. That hasn't happened for them. No. And I'm just wondering whether if you if you have, and you know whether this is, again, another warning for the rest of the world, if, if interest rates are low and that becomes the new normal, 
it starts to lose its impact because people well, are going to go, oh, well, I can, yeah. I can invest any time. There's no rush. Well, you're already, already in massive debt. You've seen a debt crisis beforehand that wiped out a large number of companies. Um, yeah. Your corporation has been dominated in its cash flow usage by not investing, which is what Sony and uh, Honda and co. used to do, but by maintaining or reducing its level of debt gradually over time. You have 30 years of that and you lose mm. the innovative power you used to have. So yeah. it's important to get that level down uh, they've got a, the, the, the private debt level in Japan is now roughly the same level as America. So they've reduced it um, over a, over a 30-year period. It literally, you can date it back to 1990. But they wasted uh, two decades in getting there. And still, so the, they're those, only in the same situation as America. Those, well, and there's the, that was going to be my next question, actually, about how it relates to America. Because if you look at those three strands of Arbonomics, you know, which is uh, basically low interest rates, more government spending and uh, and, st- and structural reform. Mm. I'm just wondering, you know, you look at what Donald Trump wants. He wants pretty much the same thing, doesn't he? He wants the interest rates to be as low as possible. He's uh, He is racking up uh, government spending. Uh, sadly, he's using it, you know, with t- tax cuts for the rich. But that's his mm. structural reform as well, isn't it? You know, making mm. the rich richer. I mean, is, is is there a big difference between Arbonomics and Trumponomics? Uh. <laughs> or are they fundamentally the same thing? Well, I I, th- I think it's a half it's a half baked understanding of the role of government mm. spending, with a a, a quarter baked understanding of the role of private debt, or zero baked understanding of that. Um, in a milieu set by a credit crunch. That's, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I think... I mean, a, Donald Trump, to his credit, did want that government, government spending to go into uh, into infrastructure investment. It just never happened. Yeah. So, I mean, he was making yeah. the right noise. Several infrastructure that, weeks which have never occurred. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like <laughs> Japan in that sense did spend a large amount of money on infrastructure. And, and people were saying you get, you're getting six-lane highways to fishing villages, uh, which is mm. part, part of the waste that people worry about in that situation, um, but the, the the fundamental thing, Japan was scarred by the debt bubble, the private debt bubble of the 1980s, scarred by its aftermath, uh, and and because Japanese corporations rely upon debt finance rather than equity finance for their most of their investment, and the equity is plunging as well because of the collapse in the um, in the Nikkei, um, you had uh, the innovation engine disappeared, and. Mm. Strangely enough, if you look around the world and say, where's innovation occurring these days? Uh, I'm afraid it's back with my mate Elon. Um, there's there's mm. not a lot of investment going along in, in most of the world. Uh, I mean, we, why? Because we're all in much the same situation the Japanese got themselves into. Yeah. So is Japan in a really bad place or is it in, I mean, it, it, it's still a strong economy. Okay, they're not seeing that innovation. Maybe Maybe that'll come back, but I mean, it's. The, the, I mean, the, there's not a lot of people living in, in in poverty. It's still exporting a lot of cars. I mean, mm. it is making electric cars. They're pulling back a lot of their production back to Japan to try and make this transition to uh, to building electric cars. Mm. Um, so it's it's the, the, the it's an economy that was initially built on growth, and it's had to transition to slow growth and or no growth a, a, at all. So is is it can a country do that, or is that does that put itself in a precarious situation? Well, and similarly, mm, could, mm. Could, could we see China going a bit the same way? You know, they've had this period of extensive growth. Could they go a bit the way of Japan? I mean, they haven't got the private debt issue. Well, they've got, they do have 
a lot of private debt, of course, as well, don't they? But a lot of it's been funded by government debt. But could they go the same way? They could, but the, I think the Chinese are more conscious of the role of, of monetary power, fundamentally. Mm. And uh, I mean, they, they, they basically encouraged a private debt bubble back in 2010 as their remedy for the global financial crisis. I, from memory, this figure sticks in my brain, the exports, China's exports in 2008 fell 46%. And in response to that, they, they, because again, most of the banks in China are state owned or certainly state directed. They basically yeah. told the um, finance sector to lend to anybody with a pulse. And you went from 100% of GDP as the debt, private debt level to 220% in about six years. And it's basically three times the rate of growth of private debt during the uh, Japanese bubble economy. But in the aftermath, you've still got this enormous level of government spending for infrastructure across the entire country and the and the uh, the Silk Road, the the the, yeah. the, the one build initiative. Um, so this is um, I think and a China somewhat bigger still, population as well. We a do, somewhat bigger, about what five times the size of Japan. <laughs> we, and, yeah. in, and in fact, you know, if you look at them moving towards the middle class, it's a it's a growing population as well. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, China also imposed the the one child policy for a while, yeah. and that's been taken away by the. Uh, I think it was not, wasn't a, it wasn't a dumb dumb brought in the one child policy, but it's been certainly under Z and his predecessor that's gone. Mm. Um, so you've got a growing population in China, but it's you know 1.4 billion people. Um, I, I think that that may well go into reverse at some point as well. But Japan has got a negative demographic and is still. Uh, in terms of per capita living status, has improved for the last one and a half decades. Yeah. So they need a few uh, dodgy contraceptives or a, uh, a, a government-funded scheme or something like that, you know, to, to okay. paid to procreate. I'm just, I'm, this is the rainy season. I'm just wondering how much the rain outside is I can hear a little bit of it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There was, okay, something good, to, yeah, yeah. We, and we were getting on to what you should do on a rainy day. That's, they need more of that in Japan, maybe. <laughs> Look, um, so what, what happens next in Japan is the, is the question. Um, and what do, what do you think? I mean, there is a danger. So is it Yoshida Suga? I'm not sure. The front runner, the chief cabinet secretary, is mm. a front runner to, to replace Abe. Uh, who is calling for more fiscal constraint. In other words, you know, the, um, the, the complete opposite of Arbonomics. Let's see how that works out for them. Well, like that would be a negative. I guess this is the trouble. I mean, they'll do this and then you'll have an increase in unemployment. You'll have a slowdown in the rate of growth because um, you're taking money out of the economy. A surplus is deflationary. Um, it probably will drive them back into further actual price deflation as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then they'll be forced to go into reverse once more. So it's this half-baked understanding that uh, politicians and policymakers have courtesy of mainstream economics. Uh, and the advantage of Japan is that it's only half-baked, whereas America, the UK, Europe and Australia are quarter-baked. So it is interesting, isn't it, just as, you know, for final observation, um, you know, that uh, putting on the hats and uh, talking about the madness but pointing to Japan, normally when you talk to people about the idea of governments spending more, putting more money into the economy, everyone talks about runaway inflation and they talk about Venezuela, for example. I mean, mm. the answer is, well, OK, that's Venezuela. What about Japan? Exactly the same situation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the opposite. It's doing everything that's supposed to be causing problems in Venezuela. Mm. And it's got deflation. Yeah. So, and... Uh, and by the, just in terms of growth, I mean, it's had some periods of substantially negative growth in, in nominal terms. It was, again, I hope my program works here, it was as bad as minus 6% during the financial crisis. Mm. But they still have 
um, you know, a, a, a rate of real economic growth at the moment. And they've mm. been sustaining that for about the last 10 years. So, yeah. you know, all, all the lessons people take and say, oh, don't, the deficit, don't the government debt get too high? What is the level of Japan? Four times the level of Maastricht. Uh, don't have large deficits. They've got two to three times the level of Maastricht. Uh, it, mm. it's, it's giving the lie to conventional thinking and it's, mm. and it's, it, it advocates both modern monetary theory and my credit based analysis. Uh, but of course, the politicians haven't learned from it. They're still regurgitating what they learn in MBAs and there they are right. wanting to cut the government spending again, just what the country doesn't need. Right. Oh, well, we'll look back at Shinzo Abe and say, yeah, he did a good job, perhaps, even though he's perhaps leaving uh, under a bit of a cloud right now. He's, I mean, mm. he's not well. It's the real reason he's leaving. But I'm sure part of it is because uh, he's not seeing the recovery he would have he would have hoped for. And clearly there's political pressure, uh, mm. as we're seeing, which might see a complete reversal of it all and the undoing of it all. It's going to be interesting yeah. to watch what happens in Japan, isn't it? Good to talk, Steve. I'll catch okay. you again very soon. Okay. And next time, Steve Keen's favourite pastime lately, debunking Nordhaus. Uh, just how much has Nordhaus's climate change work really driven us off the agenda of climate change? Uh, perhaps a timely one, given the Extinction Rebellion out in force. Uh, how important is climate change? How wrong is William Nordhaus? That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. 